Hello and welcome to the Green Canary. Today on the show, we are going to be talking about something pretty remarkable that happened in Australia. I think it's a big change in the entire direction of our country. I refer, of course, to the federal election, what it means for climate mitigation, action, renewables, development, the whole bunch of it. Of course, we're going to be talking about that. We'll talk about the real teal deal that has engulfed so many seats, the green wave, sound like superheroes. And we're going to talk a little bit about some news that came out of the UN this week, plus a whole bunch more. I am joined this week, hallelujah, praise the Lord. Thank you so much, <laughs> Elfie, for being back. Elfie Scott, how are you? I am well, thank you so much. And an apologies to the audience for disappearing for a couple of weeks. I was finishing a book manuscript and slowly losing my mind. So that is over now and very exciting to be back in the studio. It's great to have you here. So why don't you just absolutely take uh, over? I will sit back, have a slurp of my milkshake and uh, <laughs> tell me some things. All right. So let's get into it because as you say, and the news is very big this week. We now have a new government. It's a Labour-led government. Uh, we're not quite sure at this point if they are going to get a majority government or a minority. Who knows that's going to happen in the next couple of days. But we do know that Anthony Albanese is now the 31st Prime Minister of Australia. And we also know that Labour has a much more progressive environmental stance than the coalition government that we had before. Uh, so, in fact, let's hear from Albanese's victory speech, because there was a very interesting part of this that I think felt really inspiring and quite relieving to a lot of people who care about the climate. Together, we can end the climate wars. Together, we can take advantage of the opportunity for Australia to be a renewable energy superpower. How did you feel about that, Ant, when you were watching that on a Saturday night? Actually, did you even stay up that late? Um, yeah, absolutely I did. I was in an election <laughs> party and, and um, I, I, I just felt so positive, Elfie. Um, it doesn't matter really how I felt or how you felt. I think I think there was a collective sigh of relief around Australia amongst mm. so many people. Um, he spoke about the lost decade as well, and we did we did lose a decade. We uh, we have lost a decade worth of climate action, a crucial crucial decade. Um, and so, I just want to make the point so clearly off the bat to our listeners and to everybody that that. It really doesn't matter um, who you support politically. Green, teal, Labor, Liberal, National, uh, <laughs> the yellow mob, the irrelevant <laughs> yellow mob. Um, <laughs> it really, really doesn't matter. Um, we can't afford to be left, left behind. Australia mm. is not a country that, that gets left behind on, on these sorts of revolutions like the renewable energy revolution. Well, we shouldn't be. We have been to an extent. I just hope that over the next three years we start catching up and fast. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think it's such a great point. Uh, but for the audience's sake, let's give a recap of Labor's plan because we've got the new government, they're all shiny, and mm. they are coming into office now. So let's talk about the commitments that they've made in terms of cutting down on greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Labor's plan, just to 
Crash Course Reminder is called Powering Australia and they've made a commitment to reduce carbon emissions by 43% by 2030 and they also have an aim to net zero by 2050. Uh, They've said that the plan will spur something like $76 billion worth of investment. They're going to upgrade the energy grid to fix energy transmission for renewables and they're also going to make electric vehicles cheaper as well as install all of those powering stations across the nation that have been keeping people a little bit apprehensive about investing in electric vehicles to begin with. Um, that and much, much more to come, apparently. Uh, so, yeah, that as much as Labor's plan isn't the most climate progressive, uh, there are definitely Teals who believe in a greater car- in carbon emissions by 2030. And the Greens obviously have a much more progressive plan. It's still a pretty bloody good start. As I say, it points us in the right direction. It turns the entire ship Australia around, Mm -hmm. flips it, and absolutely points us. You know, we we are not global outliers anymore um, in in the climate sphere. Uh, 43% by 2030 um, is not, as you said, the strongest or most ambitious net zero target, but you know, and it may yet be that it looks like they're going to form a majority government, by the way. But mm. let's let's say the numbers don't quite get them over the line and they have to deal with someone and they might get, you know, nudged in the guts <laughs> by the, Dr. Monique Ryans and, 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 and people <laughs> of her ilk and told her, oi, up it to 50. And, you know, but I don't think that's going to happen. I think they're obviously going to form government, perhaps with, as I say, not the most ambitious um, net zero target, but with a range of programs. And, you know, some of the things they didn't mention, they're looking to create regional jobs in all of this. Mm -hmm. That'll be the real test, I think, for Labor, if if they can carry some of those regional electorates along. If they, the less they give Barnaby Joyce to whinge about, uh, the, I think the better <laughs> on all. I mean, I mean, they'll whinge anyway because that's what an opposition does. But um, some might argue that's what Barnaby Joyce does particularly well. But but they will whinge anyway. But as long as they give them as little as possible to whinge about by looking after jobs in the regions mm-hmm. uh, as this transition uh, is set in place and starts to unfold, the better. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That is such an important point. Okay, but, you know, I was feeling optimistic on Saturday and I really wanted to talk to a researcher who could give me some sort of guidance on what the next couple of years are going to look like and also exactly how optimistic I should be. So I reached out to Professor Andrew Blakers. Uh, He's from ANU and he's an expert in solar and energy policy. And yeah, I just wanted to speak to him about the future of government and what we can expect to see in terms of the logistical rollout of powering Australia, because surely I thought there have to be massive roadblocks to this. Let's hear it. On Saturday night, we saw a very optimistic speech from Anthony Albanese that touched on climate and turning Australia into a renewable energy superpower. Uh, How did you feel watching that speech? And does it give you hope that we're going to see strong climate action in Australia in the years to come? Well, it was such a change from the previous Prime Minister. So there was uh, enormous relief that um, the energy minister, Angus Taylor, is gone. I don't have to think about him ever again. <laughs> There's um, relief that Morrison is gone. I don't have to listen to his um, bald face nonsense about strong climate action by the Australian government. And there was optimism that the Greens and the, the new independents will pull the Labor Party to something reasonable, like 50 to 60% reduction in emissions by 2030, 43% is just a start. 
Sure. I mean, let's talk about that. So in terms of Labor's Powering Australia plan, like you say, they only have that 43% target by 2030. Um, I mean, do you feel like that's just not ambitious enough? And what do you feel like in terms of all of the other elements to the plan in terms of electric vehicle rollout and also the rewiring of the national grid? Getting to deep emission cuts, that's way beyond 50% by 2030, is remarkably straightforward. Um, it basically involves making sure that we're at about 90% renewable electricity by 2030, and we're well on track to do that anyway, as the coal and gas power stations shut down one by one in the face of competition from solar and wind. Mm. So that's a, that's a third of emissions, right? about 30% emissions reduction right there. Then on top of that, um, we there are two other major things that need to be done. Um, the first is basically by, say, 2025, pretty much stop buying new um, fueled cars. So by 2025, uh, so 90% of all new vehicle sales should be electric. And similarly for um, heating. So we just need to stop buying like-for-like -like replacement of gas, space and water heaters in favour of electric water heaters and space heaters. Those, those, um, those items alone get us uh, up around 50%. Then on wow. top of that is a really hard decision not to allow any more land clearing, any new coal or gas mines, um, and, and just stick with it. Yeah. Um, and the reason for the ban on clearing and native forest logging is that it's rather greenhouse intensive actually if you've got a mature forest and you convert it into wood chips then you throw away a vast amount of carbon that's stored on that land both above and below ground and that that all ends up in the atmosphere and um, new coal and gas mines come inevitably with new methane leakage which is a potent greenhouse gas and um, so if you at least stop new coal and gas mines, you've got status quo, but you don't add to the status quo in terms of fugitive emissions. Right. Okay. And I mean, you're talking about um, shutting down, uh, well, at least not opening new coal and gas projects there. But are Labor going to run into big logistical issues trying to enforce that? Um, and I suppose I also wanted to ask, are there any legislative restraints that need to be removed in order for this transition to occur? Uh, stopping new coal and gas mines is very, very easy. All it requires is that there be no export permits. Sure. Okay. This is a, a stroke of the pen decision by the Minister. Uh, very, very easy to implement. And the nice thing about... Um, as a first step stopping new coal and gas mines is that there's no established constituency. It's obviously much harder to close down existing coal and gas mines, but stopping new ones is really quite easy. Right, okay. And are there any other hurdles that you expect the Labor government will run into um, in terms of trying to get us into that transition? There are very, there are just remarkably few hurdles. Uh, moving um, primarily to solar and wind electricity is happening at a vast rate already. Australia is the global pathfinder, despite having the headwinds from the previous government. Now we're going to have a tailwind, and that tailwind is the um, expenditure of um, $20 billion or so on new transmission, and I would hope that that is pretty much all spent in the next three or four years. 
because that's the single biggest impediment to greenhouse action. Um, new transmissions needed for two purposes. One is to bring the new solar and wind power into the cities. Um, at the moment, the electricity for cities comes from coal power stations on coal mines, which is usually not the best place for solar and wind. So in other words, we just have to make sure that we um, put in the um, power lines required to get the solar and wind farms connected into the, the cities. And the second is we need stronger interstate uh, transmission to share the um, the power around so that when Victoria has not much wind and solar, it can import from New South Wales and then the next week it exports and so forth. Right, okay. And we're talking about timeframes here as well. Uh, so logistically speaking, uh, I know that you can't look into the future necessarily, but what sort of a timeline do you see for these sort of processes? Like, uh, realistically, how long would it take to actually change the grid in that way? Uh, the whole, a, a vast change could happen in three or four years. The reason I'm so confident about that is that um, you know, we managed to spend 40 or $50 billion on um, the NBN, National Broadband Network, um, which involves a lot of fiddly digging in cities and um, between cities for the optical fibre. Um, the amount of the sort of logistics required for new transmission is much the same. So spending um, several tens of billions of dollars on new transmission is really quite straightforward. There's nothing to invent. Um, Australians know quite well how to build new transmission. It's just a matter of um, sweeping away whatever roadblocks are there and getting on with it. Well, I've got to say, three or four years sounds pretty good to me. Um, how does it sound to you? Uh, well, three or four years is really quite straightforward. The thing about transmission is you can start at one end and the other and in the middle in several places. If you decide you're just going to build it, then you just go and do it. <laughs> you just It's not very difficult. It, it just requires the, the, the um, political will to, to say, we're going to do all this in, th in three or four years. And then three or four years later, you might do it again with uh, additional transmission for additional solar and wind farms. And the reason that you'll need to do that is that in order to get rid of all oil, gas and coal from the economy, we have to triple electricity production um, because we have to electrify transport and heating mm. and also the chemical industry. And that means we need uh, at least double, maybe even triple the amount of transmission we have at present. And it's just a matter of you know, building it. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Andrew. I really appreciate it. A pleasure. Wow. Well, that was Professor Andrew Blakers, who's the director of the Australian National University Centre for Sustainable Energy Systems, with a lot of positive messages. And, and you know, the fact that, that as he says, if we need to, uh, if we do get rid of uh, coal and and you know, other fossil fuels uh, from the sort of en energy picture. We need to triple um, triple the amount of electricity we produce. Uh, okay, so we're getting a whole bunch of uh, projects underway uh, in the renewables sector. But I think you come back to Labor's Powering Australia plan and, and one bit you mentioned, which is just so important. And I know uh, people like Saul Griffith uh, have mentioned this, that we need to upgrade the energy grid mm -hmm. it's as much about the stuff that's going into the grid as the grid's capacity to hold all the extra power that we're going to need to make and you know apparently the whole uh, uh, electric vehicles is going to again massively increase the amount of electricity that we do need to produce but 
good signs from uh, Professor Andrew Blakers. So that's that was a good get. Yeah. That was the sort of person but uh, that we need to hear from. But let's just move on quickly. A bit more election stuff. Um, want to talk about the teal wave and the green wave, obviously. Uh, look, I'm sure everyone has read about it by now. I'm sure everyone's dissected it. We know that there are six new teal independents, uh, Climate 200 people who... Uh, you know, backed financially uh, in the first instance um, by Simon Holmes at court. Uh, six of them have ousted Liberals from very blue ribbon seats. We've been writing a lot about them in the uh, newsletter. Uh, we've been looking at the betting odds from the sports <laughs> companies because because I, I find that an interesting uh, measure. And, 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 you know, not all of them were the favourite, but come election night... Oh boy, it wasn't a it wasn't a teal wave. It was a teal tsunami. It was a, it was it was a teal nami, um, and so you know there there are those six teal independents who've got in: uh, Allegra Spender in Wentworth, Kylie Tink in North Sydney, Dr. Sophie Scamps in McKellar, which is in Sydney's Northern Beaches, Kate Cheney over in WA in the seat of Curtin, Zoe Daniel, and Dr. Monique Ryan both in Melbourne. And those are just the ones who pushed out liberal incumbents. There are a bunch more, actually. There, there, there actually are more. And, of course, there's Zali. And there's even yeah. those who've been around forever, um, like Andrew Wilkie, uh, the independent, who who has a teal streak. You know, yeah. he, climate action is very much part of his platform, along with anti-gambling and stuff, which is ironic because I just mentioned the odds. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, but this, this was an election that was decided on climate. Now... Um, I'm going to give the Green Canary a little pat on our own back, if I may, um, because we said, is this going to be the climate election on, on April 11 in our first podcast and newsletter after the announcement of, of the election? Uh, we hoped it would be. We weren't even sure. We weren't always sure it was going to be. <laughs> there was almost nothing mentioned by both major parties, but it turned out that climate had such a big effect in this election and... This is shown not just in the teals, but the greens, Mm -hmm. of course, at last count. How many? So we know that they have two more MPs. I think there are two more seats that are currently in contest, but it looks like they're probably not going to win those. But we do know that there are two more seats in Brisbane. So we've got Stephen Bates and we've got Max Chandler-Mather, I believe. Oh, no. So Stephen Bates is the one that's still in contest. We've got Elizabeth Watsons-Brown, who has gotten in. We know that for sure. That's in Ryan. So, so, So look... You've got Bant in Melbourne. You might have three others. And those three others, and I just think this is no coincidence, those three others are all along the Brisbane River. Yeah. Now, the Brisbane River flooded, had its worst flood a long time before the election cycle we've just been through. In 2011, um, the the twin La Ninas of 2010-11 were devastating for the Brisbane River. That was when we had the Grantham floods and Brisbane really flooded. It hasn't quite flooded as badly in the last three years as bad as it did then, but pretty close. There's been at least two moderate to major floods. The point is, this is an Australian city that the effects of climate change, brackets those effects being more extreme weather and more frequent extreme weather, uh, the effects of climate change are racing right through town. Mm-hmm. You know, you can live in a city. I mean, it happened everywhere. I mean, the bushfires were sort of happening over there, if you like, but cities were choked with smoke as well. So Brisbane's not the only place where where sort of the, the climate disaster came home to roost. 
but certainly Brisbane more strongly than anywhere else. And I don't think it's any coincidence at all that three seats possibly along the Brisbane River have fallen to Greens. Yeah, totally. And those are, I mean, they're all close to Lismore as well, relatively as well. So, that's, that's yeah. it's, I mean, that whole region, uh, exactly. And, and, you know, the Greens, just it's worth mentioning that the Greens achieved 12.1% of the primary vote nationwide at latest count. Um, Their so highest ever primary vote. That is correct. They've never previously topped 12, that which they did at, at, at only one election, and they topped 10 two other times. But but historically, I think their average would be 7 or 8% since they start started first contesting federal elections as a party in 1993. So up and up and up for the Greens. And um, again, it was the climate election. Yeah, totally. So we haven't seen Senate results yet, but those two are looking very interesting and as though there are going to be a lot more climate progress progressives in the upper house but that is enough election talk for the moment let's move on and we want to talk about the un state of the global climate report um so that just came out this month and it's analyzing all of the data from 2021 and it's something that we really want to talk about because we know that there's a lot of hope right now we know there's so much optimism about what the labor government will do but we need to be miserable but we need to stay miserable we do need a little bit just a little bit i I think we need a reminder that we can't turn away from this now Mm. it's not just in safe hands we have to keep paying attention and why we have to keep paying attention is because we are seeing increasingly alarming figures so Last year, we saw greenhouse gas emissions, sea level rise, ocean heat and ocean acidification. All of those four factors reached new level records uh, across the globe. Uh, So, for example, the global annual temperature has reached 1.11 degrees higher than pre-industrial levels. The ocean is losing unprecedented levels of ice and the pace of sea level rise is increasing. And carbon concentration in the atmosphere reached 149% of pre-industrial levels. So, you know, as much as we can celebrate and, you know, look towards this block of people who are promising climate action in Parliament now, we just have to remind ourselves that there is so much work to be done. And, you know, we'll look towards COP27 and hope that this sort of data will actually push global leaders towards some sort of consensus on acting progressively here. Absolutely, yeah. The, the numbers are really a slap in the face. And, you know, my new hero, I got a massive man crush, enormous crush on Antonio <laughs> Guterres. Um, the, the, the head Is of it the glasses? <laughs> well, I... I I actually learned Portuguese a few years ago. I don't speak it well at all, but I did a Portuguese language course, so I'm prone to anyone who speaks a bit of Portuguese. But um, look, I like the way he speaks in English. I like the things he says. I like the way he speaks his mind. Again, that's something we've mentioned in the newsletter. Uh, we've, we, I'm going to run a full page of Guterres quotes soon, and it'll, it'll, it'll be the best read you've had all week. Um, but he said this week, uh, the, 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 this week's report uh, is a dismal litany of human, humanity's failure to tackle climate disruption. A dismal litany of humanity's failure. Um you know, I'm going to go home and tell my, my teenagers who never clean up the kitchen, kids, this is a dismal litany <laughs> of your failure to tackle kitchen disruption. And it won't make any difference, but I'm going to feel better saying it. Yeah, why not? Why not use UN fighting language? Just do it. Um, anyway, we want to move on from miserable news, but 
let's just be honest and be realistic and continue to keep up to date with these sort of reports. We will, we will. All right, so let's let's just uh, transition briefly over into mulch. Just a couple of little bits and pieces. We didn't have time for too many bits and pieces. It was all big picture election-y stuff this week. But um, there's a um, new report that global warming is making us lose sleep. Um, mm. Elfie, tell me more. Are we losing it because of uh, we're worried about it or is it too hot to sleep? What's going on? Well, humans just don't sleep very well when we are in warm weather, right? Like, I think that we can all agree that in summer it can be sort of a nightmare, like yeah. a sweaty nightmare trying yeah. to sleep. But this report has found that at a very conservative estimate, we're losing up to 44 hours of sleep a year because of the warming climate, which is pretty wild. And I know that this might sound like a small like little part of our lives, but actually losing sleep is hugely consequential for things like mental health, uh, suicide rates, uh, mental health crises and heart attacks. Those are all associated with losing sleep. And so the researchers are pointing towards this data and saying, hey, this is another really big cause for alarm because the human population is not going to do so well if we're not sleeping. And they actually pointed to the heat wave that has hit India and Pakistan recently. And two they, of them. There were actually two of them. Yeah, back to, back right. to back heat waves. Not good. Wow. Well, they said that it could be resulting in billions of individuals losing sleep at this really high rate. So, yeah, keep an eye on your sleep, folks, and maybe buy a fan. I don't know. <laughs> well, the whole point is we hope we do not have to buy fans. True. Now, now I'm a fan. Speaking of fans, shocking segue, but I am a fan <laughs> of birds. I love birds. Birds are my favourite flying creatures. Uh, <laughs> Next to bats, bats yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. The, uh, yeah. insects. <laughs> oh, insects, good one. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, look, um, and leave it to New Zealand. New Zealand, I just generally think of as a more progressive country than Australia, ecologically, socially, in many ways. Uh, I'll throw it to you again, Elfie. What have they done with birds? Those kiwis, and I don't sure. mean those kiwi birds. I mean those kiwi people. <laughs> well, the kiwis might be involved. <laughs> so New Zealand has these inner city sanctuaries for birds, and there have been reports recently on how incredible the results are from these urban eco sanctuaries. So Wellington has one that's called Zealandia, and that's been around for about thirty years, and it has been credited with the return of so many bird species to the city. So I'll give you. Uh, uh, some statistics here. Since 2011, the number of native birds being seen around the capital has increased by 50%, which is pretty remarkable. And for some of the birds, it's actually much higher. So the kaka had increased by 250%. Uh, there's a bird called the kereru, which has in, uh, increased by 186%. And the tui is up by 121%. So there's a lot more birds around and it just takes just that little bit more of a sustainable and ecological outlook in cities to keep them alive and keep them thriving. That is absolutely fantastic news. Although one of the kakas that you mentioned, uh, a species of those is the kia. I love kias. They're parrots. They live in the mountains. I know this because I'm a snow lover. I've been up skiing. <laughs> kias spend their whole days picking rubber off cars. Oh, no. So the, the fact that, Yeah. <laughs> so look, the, the, the kia is a wonderful, friendly perhaps too friendly uh, bird, but it, it is amazing seeing a parrot in the alpine environment. We see them in Australia too, of course. We see rosellas in the in the snow country and cockatoos. Mm -hmm. But um, 
no, it, it's it's wonderful that to me that the Kias are, are are increasing and all these other birds. Good on you, New Zealand, for looking after birds. Yeah, just sorry for the cars. That sucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we are recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders, past and present, and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thank you, Elfie. And I'd just like to remind everyone, like I always do, I think I may have threatened violence once. I'm not oh, yeah, you did get a bit aggressive at one point about mm. the newsletter. Well, perhaps we started getting more subscribers and I eased off a little, but I would <laughs> invite you all. I would cordially invite you all to subscribe uh, to our weekly newsletter, which I write, for better or worse. Um, it's hello at thegreencanary.co is an email that you can uh, send and we will throw you on and people are enjoying it got some lovely feedback from a guy called nathan last week i won't read it but it was it was really good and actually i got feedback from a friend of mine who is a councillor on local council um a greens councillor uh and she said and and finally all my uh green news in one place uh i never know where to go to get across everything i get a million things on my desk your newsletter kind of coalesces the, the key mostly national and international issues that I need to know about. Obviously, she's across all the local stuff. So that's good. So if you want to be like our local, if you want to know more than a local Greens councillor, <laughs> please subscribe. And uh, say hello to us on Twitter, at Green Canary Pod, and on Insta, at Green Canary Media. That is all from us. We will see you next week with a special guest. Catch you later. Bye.